All right, we got here Ken Cox, owner of RCIG, the host of the Clicks and Bricks podcast, uh, owner of Box STL as well. Really happy I didn't botch that one. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Ken. Appreciate you taking the time, man. No problem. Just to clarify real quick, I'm a, the president of River City Internet Group and a shareholder. I'm not the owner. I am a owner. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly large group of shareholders. Fair. I appreciate the clarification there. H- how's your day going, man? Appreciate you taking the time. It's going very well. You? Yes, sir. We're doing very well. Um, right now, we are currently recording on the day after Thanksgiving, which is uh, awesome because a lot of people wouldn't actually you know, take the time to record a podcast the day after Thanksgiving. Um, but you had said, hey, you, you didn't skip a beat. So let's let's walk right into there. We'd love to learn a little bit more about like your world, what it looks like, um, kind of how you got to where you are today and where you're at. Oh, my that's that's a big question there. Um, <laughs> so just start where just start in the beginning with the companies. Let's do it. Yeah. Into today. Let, let's start with the beginning of where these companies started and then kind of where we're at today. OK, uh, so I started as a entrepreneur very young um realized that the the normal side hustle of just a nine to five job wasn't going to cut it for me um so i started my first company really young probably 14 15 years old doing vending machines um grew did a whole bunch of stuff video production fast forward to 1999 right um i was in the entertainment industry i went to film school um i had gotten home from a tour uh, traveling nationwide and I took a job at this company called Primary Network. Um, it was supposed to be temporary. Absolutely temporary, right? Hey, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to sell this DSL crap. Um, right? Digital subscriber lines. It was just flying off the shelves in 99 because people wanted faster internet. I knew the internet because um, I'd had to build some websites for bands and stuff like that early and I, uh, I, I worked at WashU in their medical library making videos so I took classes at WashU as well. Um, so I had a lot of a lot of depth in in the internet in 1999, which a lot of people didn't have. Um, so I took this job. I got off tour, took a job, primary network selling DSL. First week, I'm sitting there. Uh, somebody walks in, and says, "Who knows how to FTP?" I'm like, well, "I know how to FTP." And they bring me into this office, and I they upload some documents, and it ends up being I'm uploading updates to Mastercard.com. And, you know, I'm 24 years old. Um, at the time, I probably had purple hair. Right? <laughs> it's all spiked up and crazy. Um, and they're like, you're on the web hosting team from here on out. And that kind of solidifies. I left entertainment at that moment. I was not going to go back. I was having so much fun dealing with um, all these different companies of different size, right? And when I say different size, I'm talking about the local glass blower that's making pipes for the local pipe shop, all the way up to at that time my largest clients were Bear or were uh, Microsoft.com, not Microsoft, uh, Mastercard and Wonderbread were my two largest clients that I was helping um, with their online e-commerce. Um, that company sold blah 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 all that stuff. I was um, doing the web hosting stuff. And I was still dibbling my toe uh, in the entertainment industry, nightclubs, bars, stuff like that. That was my part-time gig at the time. Fast forward to 2001, um, Primary Network ended up getting sold. Uh, it was like a $150 million acquisition in early 2000. Um, I went to work for a company called Empower, the company that bought Primary. I was their e-commerce analyst for that year. And 
2000 was a rough year for the rough year for the planet, right? Especially dot com people, right? Um, you know, we had stock options. We were living life like we were um, a different different breed for sure at the moment. Sure, a lot um, of wealth on paper. Right? That tumbled really <laughs> quickly, right? And I learned right. about not spending unvested money. <laughs> which, which kept me in the entertainment industry longer than it probably should have because uh, I needed to make up some cash here and there. Uh, but That's great. Anyway, so the, the economy's tumbling. Empower's not doing well, right? They had just bought Primary Network. Um, they're not doing well at all. And I was working at Empower. My, my good friend, Steve Zakta, who worked with me at Primary, he went to work for a company called PSINet, which um, is, was one of the largest uh, ISPs in the, in the world at the time. Um, he was working on a project for, uh, you probably don't know, Scott Trade at the time. Now it's, uh, they've sold an, the whole, a whole bunch of stuff. So um, he comes to me and says, hey, we're starting a hosting company. You want, you want to start a hosting company with this? Like literally I'm at the bar one night and he just walks in and sits down and he goes, hey, do you want to start a hosting company with us? And I'm like, what's going on? He's like, me and Rick are starting a hosting company. Brian's going to fund it, and we need an operations guy. You want to you want to do that? And I'm like, well, I'm over at Empower, and I'm buying a house right now. I'm buying my first house. I'm going to settle down and be a human. Um, but I'm like, yeah, why not? Let's start it. So I got our first customer pretty quickly um, with a blog post, right? Uh, so dedicated server, and that's how Hosterian was started. Fast forward a couple of months, right? We've got a couple of customers, very, very small. This is still Empower early 2000s, reaches, right? Huh? This is still early 2000s? Early 2000s. Empower yeah. reaches out and says, hey, we're leaving St. Louis market. You want your customers back. So we raised some cash. And at that time, I was running Hosterian's operations, building the servers, doing all that stuff. And I was working at Empower. Right? And now they have 4,000 business class customers that are up for sale. And we raised the capital to purchase them. And then River City Internet Group was born. That's how we raised the money. And Hosterian was its first acquisition. From there, run through the next 20 years of my life, it's just constant restartup, 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 restartup. Um, we landed the deal. A big home run for us was we saw an RFP, a request for proposal come across, right? Now, mind you, at the time, we're four employees. Right, roughly four or five thousand customers. We have this other little programming department that's doing their startup next to us, right? So when we formed River City, we started a hosting company, software company, like all these little divisions. So you have different groups doing different things. But we had the software division, and we answered an RFP for AOL to build a back office for them. Um, we had built the back office before for all of our stuff, and the back office services were not around then, and we dipped our toe in uh, telecom for a minute. So we had a really cool piece of software. We filled out the RFP and landed the deal. Right? <laughs> so now Big we're deal. building the back office for a company called uh, AOL was the company, but they they spun off this brand called Netscape.com that was low-cost dial-up, $9.99. If you're leaving AOL for $20 a month, you could hop over to $9.99 Netscape. So we built that back office. Landed the contract. Me and Steve wrote it, sent it off the RFP, got the deal. Holy shit. Right? <laughs> like uh, we were getting 10 cents a user that signed up and we made the biggest mistake of contract of, that you could ever make. Uh, so we were getting 10 cents per month per user. 
And in the contract, they had asked us to put in a stipulation that they could buy the rights to the software at any time for $1 million for their own personal use. Um, Mm. The second that we got to billing at about $250,000 a month, we got a check in the mail for $1 million. And... (laughs) Um, they said, I don't even want to know what that would look like services. today. Yeah. Um, we're happy to hire any of the programmers that you have on staff, but we're going to be um, closing this contract out and taking our taking the right source software. Um, <laughs> a really good million dollar mistake. I'm sure. But, I'm sure you've made. I was going to say. I'm sure you've done the math on uh, on 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 the other alternative. <laughs> it doesn't hurt as bad as the crypto exit of sixteen that I did, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it hurts pretty bad. Yeah. So, but at the time, you know, we had scaled up to, I think we had about 170 employees at that time when AOL purchased that, um, that piece of software for their own use. Luckily we had closed a couple other ISPs, right? So we had sold this and it was running under a few other ISPs. The largest one at the time was clear.com. Um, who was, they were doing this like uh, really high speed wireless internet service provider. Uh, Sprint purchased them. Uh, anyway, we kept the rights to the software. We ended up selling that to a company called Amdocs um, a few years later. They they bought our software division, and then we went under a 10-year non-compete for any software development. So that ended in 17, and we started doing new software development at that point. Uh, so that gets us to there. And it was pretty boring, right, um, through all of that. Uh, normal business kind of getting lost in the daily grind, right? Um, we landed a custom, very similar to the to the AOL story. Um, me and one of the other teammates, we were courting a company called Peabody Energy for a very long time. Um, they're a St. Louis-based company, largest coal company in the world. Well, they weren't largest company in the largest coal company in the world then, but we started courting them. We knew that their data center was going downhill a little bit, and we ended up closing the deal for that. Um, that grew our business quite, quite well, right? So now we have uh, 2012, to somewhere in there. We had three data centers in St. Louis. We had the coal industry. We had Peabody Coal and Arch Coal. We were their main data center provider, plus all of our other customers. We really threw our feet up and just coasted for the hosting department, man. It's like, we host for the coal companies. Nothing's ever going to happen to coal. And then 2016, they both filed bankruptcy in a week. Mm-hmm. Um, left me with millions of dollars of leases um, that we had out that we took long, uh, long leases on to reduce the price because it was a coal industry. It was a low risk, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, River City Internet Group is made up of about 30 people, right? I, we had to raise money. It took, took a lot of people to raise the amount of money that we needed to, to raise to build the data center. Uh, data centers are not cheap. Um, and some of those, some of the main shareholders are like, we're not filing bankruptcy. We'll fund the exit, but we're not filing bankruptcy, right? That's not going to happen under our watch. So, Ken, you've got two choices. You can, um, you know, tough it out and try to figure this out, or we can shut everything down and we'll just fund the exit and, you know, give the customer six months and we'll, we'll wind them out and, uh, you know, make sure everybody lands safely. And I chose to try to make it work, <laughs> which, I mean, the banks told me not to. Everybody's like, you're not, this is going to fail. There's no way. There's no way out of this, right? You're $4 million a year at deficit. Um, 
But now we're running at a positive EBITDA. I'm completely out of debt. Uh, not completely out of debt, but pretty, you know, like my mortgage uh, on the buildings, right? And stuff like yeah. that. So we don't have any unsecured debt left uh, for the most part. Paying our bills, everything's going good. And the shareholders aren't kicking in any cash, right? And that was just about the daily grind and humility and calling the vendors, promising them, I'm here for you. I'm going to figure this all out. You know, it's going to take some time. If you work with us, we'll work with you. Um, you know, some bumps and bruises along the way, but we got there by the end of um, 2021. Uh, 16, 16, 17 is when all those bankruptcies happened. Uh, we went to a $4 million deficit, which means I was running, I was upside down $4 million a year, right? Had to figure that out. Um, yeah. figured, took about five years to figure that out without bankruptcy. Um, a lot of hard decisions, you know, along the way, but we got there. And then in 20, this year, 23 in April, we got rid of our last large lease. Um, for that, which was a $60,000 a month lease. Um, that is gone. Um, the landlord still isn't 100% happy, um, but we're still figuring out those details, right? So it, it was, we were in a lot of trouble and now we're not. So through this whole timeline, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scale and growth and then a big contract or a big deal hits the table. And now suddenly you have to figure out how to serve that deal. Like how have you gone, how has your, how has your team evolved and how have you gone about growing your team properly uh, through the, the good, the bad, the ugly, and all the way up until the good of today, essentially like what does that evolution look like right. for, for you? Um, so it starts with friends and family for us. Right. I mean, that's where it all starts. Um, which comes with its own set of tragedies and um, horror stories and, and beautiful moments, right? All, all in the same, right? When you work with somebody you love and you're this close, especially if you've never worked in a startup, like a true hustle startup culture, um, you know, this is one thing that I liked about the film and the music industry so much is like when you're working together, you become family, you become a cohesive unit right? Everything's flowing and chugging, right? No, nothing's, nothing can go bad. When that's good, it's really good. But when it's bad, it's, it's really bad. And when you are family with, then it's even worse. So starts there and then bre reaches out. Um, I'm not a huge fan of outsourcing labor unless you have to, right? I, I definitely like to keep staff as much as possible in a house. That is slowly changing as the world is is changing on me. It doesn't seem like people want the, um, doesn't seem like the kind of people that we're really wanting to attract, um, you know, self-starters, go-getters, things like that are as dependent on a Monday through Friday, nine to five job as they used to be. They have a lot of options now. So um, today it's, you know, more of setting up people with ownership of uh, business units and, and, you know, letting them exercise their legs and, and run. Back in the day, it was, uh, you know, a marketing campaign for your staff is the same as a marketing campaign for your product. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you've got to market. Hey, I'm hiring. You know, we're out there. When, when you're going good and fast, right? When you go from, I, I've got to see from two employees to 700, down to 170, down to 20, down to four, back up, 
the 170, like I've got to see all of those transitions and they're all challenging. Every one of them is challenging. Um, but in it, in at least St. Louis is a small town. You get to the point of I'd say around 80 to hundred employees when you're hiring fast then people really start looking at you and saying, Hey, I want to, I want to work there. Right. And then you start getting this other side of where people are soliciting you to work there. Mm. If you so, get benefits and all that other stuff, right? Sure. So you have a after you guys uh, exit the company, you have a ten year non compete in the zone of your guys' genius. What it sounds like was on the software developing side, right? That was a software development. Yes. Yep. So now that's a ten year gap where software development took a leap, like. Like the the way that you create software back then to where like now there's like a bunch of no code stuff today. Like how were you able to keep your sword sharp and like where is that evolve where where is that evolved like to today and how you guys use it um, as opposed right. to 10, 15 years ago? So luckily for us, we started as an infrastructure play, right? River City Internet Group and Hosterian as those two are infrastructure play. So that's our that's our foundation for everything that we do, right? So we can scale something and fail back. We own and operate the data center. You know, we've got access to hundreds of giga bandwidth and, you know, as much, as much storage as we could possibly, well, not as much imagine, but a lot. So that's kind of where we've been saved on these big exits, these, uh, you know, third parties that file bankruptcy on us, our customers that file bankruptcy. That's where it saved us every time. Um, programming then and now, since we had the infrastructure, we kept our swords swords sharp. Um, we still had our we still own and operate our own back office. We don't use a third party, like we don't use Salesforce or somebody else. We kept our own back office that we wrote up to date, and and it all works really well for our needs. So we own and operate our own back office. Since we do our own infrastructure, we also write our own code to manage that infrastructure. Um, and I would say, up until last year it's been very similar than how i would have done it 15 years ago right i'm using git now but i was using platypus or something back then right for code revisions and things like that but with gpt it's drastically different totally right yeah talk, so let's this talk year, about that i think this year has taken the biggest leap forward so um today if i were to you know i'm looking more for um people that know how to orchestrate and know a whole bunch of little pieces and lean on the AI for the intricate details. Right. Um, yeah. The, the days of looking for a lost comma or colon are gone. Totally. <laughs> what, 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 yeah. So if you don't mind expanding on that, just because AI is, is going to impact every industry in so many ways, you know, maybe just if you could just give us your thoughts on AI, how it's the good it's going to, it's going to do for business and also maybe some of the bad. It could have I don't know if bad's the right word, right? But like just the good, bad, the ugly, just kind of your overall take on AI and the benefits of it. How it's yeah, and this week, right? We're, we're recording on Black Friday, the week that Sam Altman was fired and came back. And yeah, like, crazy. I, I don't know if the world knows this, but I think this week might be a pivotal moment in the world's history 100 years from now. Like it's big, big changes. Um, as far as development goes in AI, the, the bad right out of the gate is it could be used for nefarious shit, right? Yeah. Um, 
script kiddies, which are just, you know, hacker kids that don't know much. They just get scripts and execute them and try to screw people over. Um, their resources now are as deep as you can imagine, right? The benefit is the resources on the other side of the fence are as deep as you can imagine too, right? Understanding how to harden a an application that was written on a CentOS 3 machine, which is 10 years old now, I can now take stuff, put it in ChatGP and say, how would I protect this application instead of rewriting it? Or better yet, I can take that old PHP code, dump it into ChatGDP and say, hey, give me the upgraded output for this. You know, remove all deprecations and, and get them to modern modern things and then move those systems to move those to new systems is the the difference in production speed is tremendous. And a good orchestrator can write four or five different languages if he understands how to put those on, you know, in the systems properly. If you go with like the Lambda solutions at Amazon where you can put any kind of code in and it kind of works, then you, know, you don't have to have uh, highly specific trained people anymore. You have to have generalists that understand compute um, and understand how directory structure and um, ingress and egress for the internet. Yeah. It's a different I, understanding of, of how to do things. You don't have to know the language as well. Right. Or you can get away like, like my Spanish, right? I know a couple of words. <laughs> I can, I can program PHP knowing a couple of words now. Right. How, how is this going to impact the, the labor market? Do you think, how is this going to impact, you know, our, our economy and, and workforce? Um, so short term, I see, you know, I've got programmers right now that I'm like, you need to lean on GPT. And they're like, it's cheating. I'm like, well, Everybody's got a cheat code, so it's time to cheat, uh, right? Totally. Uh, so you have that whole people of that mindset of traditional, um, you know, handwritten code. Like, are we going to have a handwritten code, like niche market? Like, no, this this code is handwritten, not by AI. Um, that's a funny, <laughs> funny process to have. Yeah. Hand coded, um, hand coded in America. That's going to be the next, uh, yeah, like, the next phrase. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it destroys a lot of jobs, but I think it makes a lot of things possible. So um, one thing that we're doing with PPGS.global is historically reading and understanding contracts or uh, publicly facing policies from companies is really hard. Like, and then you'd have, you know, you have to be a lawyer to really understand them. So um, one thing that, that AI is doing for us is now we can read those contracts and output them in, in summaries. Very easy, very quickly. Now, you still have to fine tune your your GPTs into being, you know, legal speech, and need, you need to know all the laws of your states, your cities, and all of those things to to really understand the context of that contract or that document. But um, I think people are just going to have better work. Their, their output's going to be better. They have a teammate that's built in that's, you know, assuming GPT stays twenty dollars a month, which is the best value of any product I've ever purchased in my life. Hundred uh, percent. Like, I, I think I would pay a thousand dollars a month for GPT today. Well, and and I do on the API side, but on the like, if I didn't have the APIs, um, you know, just that front end to have a, I mean, it's as good as any employee I've ever had. And and that's what I think. It's, it's going to weed out those who aren't resourceful enough to make themselves valuable inside of that marketplace, right? It's not just going to automatically take your job, but if you're lazy and don't want to adopt it, then yeah, it's probably like 
you can maybe, you know, uh, check people out at the grocery store for a couple more years before a robot starts to take your job as well. Um, so I, I think yeah. that's, that's the, the market in general of like, hey, you need to be able to bring value to society. AI is starting to bring value a lot faster. So you have to keep up with it or else you're going to get weeded out. It's just part of the market. I fear the person that doesn't adopt AI. Right. Um, I also believe that, you know, when you really start getting into AI and, and I could take left turns here very easily, you start getting into consciousness thought, you start getting into neural networks, you start getting into connectivity, connectedness, all of those things it starts getting pretty weird. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think our need for philosophers, um, people really store, you know, studying history. It's never been more important for history scholars than today. With the advancements in AI, being able to go back and feed AI authoritative sets of information, of accurate information, not the propaganda that we currently get, is so important. Um, and, I, and I believe it's going to be not – I don't know that it's going to happen the way it should happen or not, right? But I think you just posed a great point too of the fact that like a lot of people think AI is just like chat GPT, right? But, but really that's such a small part of the surface. Like that's like a, a retail consumer version of like what we see of AI, but like the amount of backend that AI does in assisting, like now we got a, uh, what, what Amazon is doing today with the NFL and how they kind of change the landscape and how their, their ad platforms have AI integrated. And it's specifically targeting people during an NFL game that you can buy in app during NFL commercials. It's, it's like the landscape is changing really quickly. And uh, it's good to have someone that we can like just pepper with questions that knows, knows the landscape. Yeah. And, you know, on that, I love the fact that the, how specifically we can target. Um, and we're using target as a positive word right now, but it can be used in, in the wildly negative as well. And that's what I really fear. And that's why I think that we need to have, you know, a couple of different things. One, transparency in everything that we do as much as possible. Um, a grading system so that everybody understands at a very quick glance what their risk is when they're sharing information with these platforms. And then I don't know how to solve this problem at all, but I think we have to have some way to authoritize the source of publish. Um, mm. When I publish something that you know that I said it, in my full context um, and how do we authoritize the source of what I said, when I said it, and where I said it, that that's going to be a challenge because, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to make a really, really believable video. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's a lot tougher to authenticate original IP now. Um, And, and uneducated consumers are going to still fall for this for, for a while. Like those that are down these rabbit holes can, can kind of start to figure it out. But it's it like the, the masses don't like deep fakes are, are legit. Like they're they're as legit as they come. Well, um, and they go deep like the they're not they used to be shallow. Right. And then now they're super deep. And the what scares me about AI and capitalism with a mix of authoritative government is what I currently think we have Um is that until AI, I've always known that everything's being recorded. Everything's been watched. Like I've kind of always just assumed that it's pissed me off, but it's like, yeah, but what are they really going to get with it? How AI assimilates data from different data sets so quickly and so beautifully that the ability to, 
for a company that has five or six subsidiaries to gather data on a person and target them for anything or a group of people is scary as hell, right? And we're living in a world, um, we're living in a world that is at jeopardy at the moment of a lot of different potential enders for us. Sure. Makes sense. Well, sorry, sorry to get us so uh, backtracked on this uh, this AI thing. I mean, it's just good to be able to talk to someone who's at the forefront of it all and under and fully understands um, the other side of it as well. Uh, but but you know, back to Ken Cox. Like, what's what's in it for you? Like, what's what's the next steps look like professionally, personally? Like, where do you want to see your vision play out over the next 10, 20 years? Um. So I love my team at Box uh, Box STL. We're the largest. Um, we're the largest youth team in the St. Louis metro area, the Ozark 22 district. Um, so I've got about 60 kids and about 500 adults that we train out of our gym. Um, we're strictly boxing. Absolutely love that. So I want to see my, my youth team grow. Um, I've been in the boxing industry now for about seven years. We started a youth team two years ago. And against everything that I wanted to do, uh, but I kept having these kids knock on my door. Um, Palestinian kids, nonetheless. Knocking on my door. I didn't know I opened next to a mosque when I moved my gym. And they're like, teach me how to box. So now I've got all these kids. um, And they've literally turned my life around. Uh, This year, I've gotten sober. So that's been a a, a big change for me. Uh, I uh, got liver disease right in the middle of of 2017. Um, So that was a very big challenge through all of this, uh, you know, dismay. I think that probably helped me a little bit because nobody expected me to win. I thought I might die. You know, it was like, screw it. We're just going to go. Right. I, what, what do I have to lose? Right. Everything's at risk. So let's just go and see what happens. Um, so that, and then PPGS, I really love, I think, um, you know, I see a world to, in the future to where a vehicle that's being sold, a consumer should have the right to know that if my if I'm in my car, how private is my conversation with my wife, my business partner, my significant, you know, whoever's in my, whoever I'm in my car with today, the car manufacturers openly acknowledge that they're recording stuff inside your vehicle. And if, and if any government official asks for the data, I think they're just handing it over. They're not requiring court orders or anything like that. No, I don't, I can't speak for them on behalf, but I've read articles that are clearly stating that, no, they're not going to require a court order to turn over the conversation that happened in your vehicle. I believe that you have a fundamental right to privacy and your expectation of privacy in your vehicle, in your home. Private conversations are private and they should be held that way. And um, at breakneck speed, we're clicking the button, giving that right away. And nobody is saying, that ah, pause. <laughs> I'm not saying we should stop. I'm just saying that, hey, you should understand what it means when you kick up a Google doc and you share it with a person and you start talking back and forth with that, does Google have the right to publish that data? They absolutely do. Is it to only the person that you're sharing it with? I don't know. The privacy policy isn't that clear. So what what you're saying is like, what it sounds like is the reason why a lot of people are reluctant to even care is because like, when I look through the terms and conditions, it's just too long, man. The, the, the fine print's too small. I'm just like, all right, everyone has an iPhone. I might as well just click accept anyway. 
Um, yeah. You guys are able to dumb it down and give us the cliff notes of what like really the ramifications are here. We're going to grade it A through F. And right now we're being a little liberal, right? We're, we're giving uh, right now we're on uh, PPGS 2.1 and the, the rubric and the grading criteria is all there. So we're still, you know, if you're being transparent, we're giving you an A still. So if you're transparently saying, hey, I use your data against you and I sell it to all of my anybody that wants to buy it for a quarter. Um, if you transparently say that you're still getting an A in our system, as we get more adoption, I think we're going to start, you know, leaning those down, but, you know, very clearly you can just look at it and get a letter grade and understand what those letter grades mean. Uh, right now I'm, I'm leaning a lot on transparency. If your if your privacy policies or your contracts are not clear, um, then that's where I start having an issue. So, so who are your, your client avatars in this, in the market? Like who are the types of businesses or individuals right. you see yourself working with and impacting the most? <laughs> so I like to make things overly complicated. Um, I think that the, the world deserves a grade of a policy for free. Um, a 13 year old doesn't have any money, can't hire a lawyer to read a privacy policy to understand what kind of data they should be sharing with this platform, right? And I'm not saying they shouldn't use the platform. I'm just saying that they should understand what the platform is going to do with their data when they share it so that they know how to, what data to share with it. Um, they're not going to have those resources. So that should be free for everybody. So I, we collect all this data and I just started collecting it, right? We're at like uh, 400,000 roughly privacy policies that we've downloaded, evaluated and graded. Uh, so we're just doing that. Right. And long-term we're going to be giving this away to every, everybody in the world. They can just go look at the grade, right? Look at this summary. Uh, so we created a product for vendor review management. Um, because we have all this stuff and risk assessments for, for businesses. So our product that we created with the, the first product that we made with this data set that we've, that we've gotten is a vendor review automation. So if you have a company and you have a lot of vendors, one to 500 vendors, and you have to do this vendor review process, which is um, one of the trust principles in a security operations center, right? You have to do a vendor review audit every year which means I talk to all my vendors. I send them an email. They send me their SOC. They send me any uh, any kind of credentials that they have. And I look at my contract and all that stuff. So since we have their privacy policy and nobody actually reads those, uh, we just wrote the software to automate the vendor review process and contract management. So that's the product that PPGS has. We sell territories to managed service providers. Managed service providers are already doing stuff for the end user. Um, they already have the customer. They're already filling these forms out for their clients. So our customer for PPGS today for this product is the managed service provider. Understood. If that makes awesome. sense. Awesome. Totally. Okay. Totally. It does. It does. So, uh, so Ken, as we you know close in on, on the wrap up point, a question we ask all of our, all of our guests that come on our show is, is, is what does consistency mean to you? This is called the consistency wins podcast. So what does consistency mean to you and how does that show up in your life personally or professionally or both? Uh, consistency is, um, I don't know if it's everything, but I don't know that you can get anywhere without it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's the daily chug. I see all the time people trying to skip rungs, right. And I've done it too, right. Oh, I don't need to, I don't need to, I don't need to sit through this class. Um, you know, cause the first 10 minutes is just reviewing everything that I already know, but you don't know what happens at minute 49, that, that data that you'll pick up. Right. So those rungs and spending the time on each rung 
is wildly important. Um, as you're climbing this ladder, those skill sets and the, the humility and the humbleness to sit through the daily bullshit sometimes is the calluses that you're going to need when stuff gets really hard. Right. Um, on the other side of that fence, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Gabe Lozano, he uh, was the founder of Locker Dome and I don't know the name of his current company. Uh, he tells this story about dancing at a wedding reception and it, it, I couldn't ever see it better. Um, and, the, and the story goes, you know, you're at a wedding reception and everybody's, nobody's dancing. Everybody's sitting in their chairs and the one guy goes out and starts dancing and nobody's dancing with them. But a couple minutes later, somebody stands up and goes and dances a couple minutes later. And then a couple goes out and, and that's what consistency does. And sometimes you have to dance by yourself. Got to dance by yourself for quite a long time too. Sometimes, right? and, and, yeah. And most of the time, it feels like that. <laughs> like so, yeah. you know, get as many bats at bats as you can, right? And you never know, right? I I started a boxing gym because I thought men like me that are suffering from alcoholism needed a place to go and hang out. Well, I suffered for five years thinking that's what I wanted to create, and I was turning kids away, knocking at my door, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just, you know, answer, you know, dance with whoever's with whoever there to, just to dance with you. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I couldn't find a better person to answer that question, given the story that you shared of the amount of ups and downs um, that not only your business took, but then your life with the liver disease and the alcoholism. So thank you so much for, for getting vulnerable and for sharing. How, how can our listeners connect with you? How can they support the business? Um, where can we find you? Yeah. The easiest way to find me is KenCox.com. Um, that's just my website. Uh, it's got all my social media profiles, all that I'm wildly transparent, right? I, I, I eat the dog food. So everything that I have is out there to the public. Um, if you want to know something, I'm, my cell phone number's on there and, and I answer it almost unless I'm on one of these and I'm on do not disturb. I, I pretty much answer the phone. So I'm available. Um, you know, we're looking for corporate clients and MSP owners. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Ken. Appreciate your time. Take care.